0: The scripture this morning is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, you reign, you rule, and you are the king. Let your reign manifest itself as we come to hear from your word this morning. Rule in our hearts, because if you are not present, these are going to be merely empty words. We ask that you would attend to your word with power, make it living and active in our lives. Let us not walk away unchanged from what we are about to hear. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. So, as Brent already said, it is a new year, and we're going to begin it with a new sermon series that we're entitling Family Matters, where we're going to be spending some time looking at the vows, the promises that we make together as a church when we join it. And we're doing this because we really think that encapsulated in these vows, in these promises, is the very essence, the core of what we believe. And as we go through this series, we're gonna be asking those questions, really basic questions like, who are we and why does the church matter and how do we live? You know, the, the, the easy questions. They're really easy to answer. Today, we're not gonna be looking at those vows. That's coming in the, in the weeks that are gonna to follow. Today, we're gonna to do something a little bit more basic and undergirding it. We're going to ask the question: who are we? What is our identity? Deep down, fundamentally, what is the church? Because we have to know who we are before we can look at what it is that we believe. So that's what we're going to do today, and that's what Peter is doing here in this passage. He's writing to a group of Christians who are wondering, and they're suffering, and they're going through trials, and they're confused, and he writes to tell them what their foundation is, what is something solid on which they can stand, and he does this by answering for them two questions. He tells them two things, who they are and why they exist who they are, and why they exist. So, as we go through this this morning, I want to see two things. Because as he answers those questions for them, he answers them for us. What is the church's identity, and what is the church's purpose? What is the church's identity, and what is our purpose? Now, fair warning, we're going to be spending more time on that first question. So as we get into the sermon, and it seems like we're really far into it, and we haven't moved on, you're like, oh man, there's a whole other half coming. It's okay, we're spending more time on the first one. So let's go ahead and dive in. Peter first addresses who they are, and there's a ton here. We can't go into all the aspects of it. I want us to look at a few specific things. And the first thing that immediately jumps out to us is he says that the church is a people. Um, English translations vary here because Paul uses different words for this concept. So in those first two verses, verse 9 and 10, he uses it... um, words for people five times, and depending on what your translation is, it may look a little bit different. But Paul's using every single word available to him in Greek to describe this concept. It's, it's like he's trying to paint a painting of a sunset, and he's using all the hues of red and orange and yellow to make it as full and rich, as glorious as he can, because he's trying to show the people that he's writing to that they are just that. They are a group. They are a people, a nation, a race, a tribe, their kin. In First John it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And all throughout the Bible, Christians refer to themselves regularly as brother and sister. Because those words up there that the NIV, which is what we're looking at here, translate people, they can also be translated family the church is a family well what what does that mean i love this quote by robert frost where he says home is where when you have to go there they have to take you in they can't turn you away a family is a group of people who are united together by a bond that can't be broken interestingly a bond of blood pay attention to that we're going to come back to that A family lives together. They're in each other's space. They know each other. They see each other at their best and at their worst. And at their best, families see that and exist and they love each other anyway. They forgive each other when they're hurt. They pursue each other's good relentlessly no matter how they're treated. Now, do we live up to that in our families? No, we don't. But that's the essence of what a family at its best is supposed to be. A family means there's a, if you're part of a family, it means that there's a place that you are known and there's a place that you belong. Family means knowing and it means belonging. When he says that we are God's people, he means that we are his family, his children. We have his name. We're called Christians, which literally means little Christ. So that's the first thing he says. Now hold on to that thought. We're coming back to the concept of family later. That's pretty good, right? We're God's family. We're his children. That's, that's a pretty good blessing. Paul, Paul, not Paul, Peter. Peter wrote this, not Paul. Um, it gets even better. He says we're not just a family, we're a priesthood. That's in verse um, verse 9, a royal priesthood. Now he's actually quoting from Exodus here, and to understand this, we've got to know what the priests were in Israel. Uh, they had a very specific purpose. They were in the temple and in the tabernacle, and they were there to offer sacrifices to God. These places were the center of Israel's life. Actually, in the tabernacle, when they were moving through the wilderness, the entire camp camped all around it, and it was smack dab in the middle. Because at the very center of the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, and that was where God was. His glory was there. His presence was manifest. And the priests were a special group a privileged group because they were the only ones who were able to offer sacrifices. And they were the only ones who were able to go in. In fact, that central room, uh, only the high priest was able to go there. And he was only able to go there once a year. That meant most of Israel couldn't get all the way in to where God was. They could get close. If you're the priest, you could get really close. If you're the high priest, you could get even closer. But they couldn't Go all the way in because if you were to be a priest, you had to be part of a special family. Not just anyone could do it. Can you imagine what that's like? What would it be like to be told God is here, He loves you, and He's chosen you, and you're His people, but you can't fully come into His presence? You can't go all the way in. There's something that's separating you. You're held out. But Peter says here that we are a priesthood. And when he says that, he means each and every Christian is a priest. That means that you and I have full access to God. We can enter into his presence. Tim Keller puts it this way, and I I love this quote. He says that the central wonder of the gospel is that we have access as priests to the downtown of the cosmos, the place everybody wants to be, the place where God is, the place where everything orbits around. It's the center. And we talk about this all the time here at Stormbridge, and it's so easy to forget what a privilege this is. Think of whoever it is alive today that you most admire, whoever it is, maybe it's a A person in a position of power, maybe it's someone of influence, Uh, maybe a celebrity, whoever it is for you, who is the person that you most admire? Now imagine that you have their private cell phone number. You can call that number and anytime you call it, they're going to pick up and they're going to answer you. Imagine that you can just walk right into their office, pass all the layers of security, all the people that are holding people out, and you can just walk right in and be there any time that you want because you have full and complete and unfettered access to them. And that is what we have as Christians, as the church with God. We can go fully into his presence because we don't need any other priests. We are. Our priests. Jesus is our high priest. We don't need anybody else to intercede for us. We can go all the way in. When he says that we are priests, he means we have access to God. But that's not the only thing he means. Just a few verses earlier in this chapter, he writes this. He says, "'You also, like living stones, "'are being built into a spiritual house "'to be a holy priesthood, "'offering spiritual sacrifices "'acceptable to God through Jesus Christ.'" Now, that could be a little confusing. Didn't Jesus offer a sacrifice? Is it he our sacrifice? And didn't that sacrifice fully, finally pay for sin once for all? How then, if that's true, and it is, by the way, how then can Peter say that we offer spiritual sacrifices to God? How can our sacrifices possibly pay for our sin that Jesus has already paid for? The Bible used sacrifice in more than one way, and Peter here is not talking about those sacrifices in the same way that we often think of when we think of Christ's atoning sacrifice that paid for our sins. If you read the Old Testament, uh, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about the sacrificial system. Let me tell you the really exciting reading. It, they just spent this whole time going through here's this sacrifice, here's this sacrifice, and this is what you do, and here are all these really specific instructions. And you're like, you read it, you're like, okay, this is really repetitive, and why are they there? But if you read it, you're going to see that there's a phrase that pops up again and again and again. Every sacrifice is described as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Sacrifices didn't just point towards a payment for sin. They pleased God. Now, fortunately, we see from Scripture that we don't, he doesn't want dead animal sacrifices. Thank goodness, otherwise this place would smell really bad on a Sunday morning when we all got here. Now, Hebrews 15 says that we're to offer up sacrifices of praise. And the Psalms say that the sacrifice God accepts is one of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Those are the sacrifices that Peter is talking here. Whenever we do this, whenever we draw near to God and offer him praise or thanksgiving or repentance or honor, in other words, any time we use the access to him that we have, we offer him a sacrifice. And you know what? He loves them. He loves the sacrifices of his people. The Psalms say he's enthroned on our praises. He doesn't need them, but he loves them. And to come into his presence offering these sacrifices is pleasing to God. So when he says we're priests, he says that we have access, but then we also can please him by coming to him and giving him everything that we are. That's even better, right? We're not just his family. We can come into his presence. We can please him. But as if that's not enough, Peter says something even more. He says that we have been chosen and we have received mercy and we are God's special possession. This is again a reference to the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy, Where God says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. The only difference between you and me who are here right now and the worst sinner who's in hell is this. We have received mercy. We have been chosen by God to be His. Out of all the people who are on this earth, He has chosen us to be His. It's not that we pray to prayer or that we know good doctrine or we serve others or that you're a member here or anywhere else, or it's not even that you trust in Jesus. All those things are important. Absolutely, we need all those things. But the core, the essence, the bottom, the foundation of who the church is, is this. We are a people who have received mercy. Because in verse 10 he says, once you weren't a people, once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have. There was nothing lovely in us to make him choose us. He just did. The good news is that means it can never be taken because it doesn't depend on us. That's a lot about identity. We're his family, we're his priests, and we're, her cho- we're his chosen possession. And there's a lot of ways we can apply this. In fact, that's gonna be all of what the next several weeks is gonna be about. So right here, I just have two. First, this doesn't apply to us alone as individuals. Our English translations don't really help us here because you can be singular or plural. Fortunately, we're in North Carolina and we have a word for the plural you. So I'm going to southern this passage up for us a little bit. But y'all are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's spiritual possession, that y'all may declare the praises of him who called y'all out of darkness. And I could keep going. You can read it there. Every single you in this passage in Greek is plural. They're not singular. All this that he says about us, who we are, it's about us together in community as his people. We can't do this alone. So, is the church your family? If people look at your life, would they say the church is this person's family? They're known here. They know people here. They serve people here. Not necessarily Stonebridge, but a church somewhere. Is there a church that's your family? Where you show mercy to others where they wrong you as you live in community because they're going to, because we are people who have received mercy from God. Or are you trying to go through the Christian life isolated and alone? Something worth thinking about. But the second is... These privileges are astounding. They're amazing. And one of the greatest problems in the Christian life is that we far too often in the day-to-day practically live way below the level of privilege that we have. What would, it be, what would your life look like if somebody came to you and said, hey, um, you're the heir of this country. You're a prince. You're a princess. This is who you are your life would change a little bit, right? Everything would change. Nothing would be the same. And that is who we are. We are, the privileges we have in Christ are astounding, and they're amazing. Do we live below them? Do we walk around with thinking that we can't please God, or that we're far from him, or that all these things that have just been said that can't be true about us, because we're messed up. The good thing is, as we said, it depends, we have received mercy. Whether you feel close to God sometimes in the day-to-day or not, if you believe in Christ, if you call upon him and if you trust in him, these things are true of you. And to God, you are chosen and you are precious. So be encouraged by that. So, it's the church's identity. Told you we're going to spend a lot of time there. What's her purpose? Peter goes on to this. And the reason we're going to spend more, far less time here is because, whereas he uses all these different images and metaphors, we didn't even touch on half of them, to describe who the church is, our purpose is very clear. There's one. And it is found in verse 9. We are all these things that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why he's chosen us, to declare his praises and to glorify him. And this is really easy because Jesus is glorious. All the things that I just said about us, they're true of Jesus first. He is God's son, firstborn of all creation. It is his name that we receive and it's upon his name that we call. It's his blood that ties us together in an unbreakable bond. He's the great high priest who gave a sacrifice that fully satisfies and pleases the father, opening the way and giving us access to him as we come before the father because of the son. He is chosen. He is precious. The Father delights in the Son. He always has. A theologian put it this way, and I'm not going to read the entire quote. It says, because the Father is love, he begets a son to whom he gives all he is and has, in whose fellowship he finds his life and delight. The Father cherishes the Son. As Peter says in verse six of this chapter, he is chosen and precious. The church is chosen and precious because the Son loves the church. And the Father loves the church. From heaven Christ came and sought us to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought us and for our life he died. You see, we don't exist for ourselves. We can't. We only exist because and for Christ to declare and praise his excellencies. So here's the heart of the matter. Jesus is precious to the Father. Is he precious to you? Is Christ precious to you? You know, as I was thinking and praying about this all this week in preparation for this sermon, I've got to admit that oftentimes he's not. It's often one of the greatest consistent disappointments in my life is that Jesus is not more precious to me. I want him to be, but all the time I find myself distracted and focused on other things. In fact, that's why um, Peter says in verse 11 that we should abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our soul because there's an entire sermon just in that verse. But because as we, as we focus on things other than Christ, as we give ourselves to things other than him, as we cherish anything else above him, our gaze is drawn away from him and we cherish him less and our soul is being slowly destroyed by these desires. They distract us from him and they shift our gaze it is possible um, for us to abandon the love that we've had at first. Jesus says that to a church of Revelation. Is that true of you? Or, maybe Jesus has never been precious to you, and what I'm talking about right now it seems absolutely bonkers. You have no idea what I'm saying. Please hear what I say, that all those things I said in the first part, how we are chosen, how we are precious, how we are priests, how we are family— All those things are only if we are in Christ. We can be found nowhere else. He and he alone is our foundation. But how amazing the hope we have is. Because if you want to know him, if you want to find him, if you want your heart to be inflamed for him and to have the cry of your heart be, Jesus is precious to me, he can be found right here in his church. Not just Stonebridge, anywhere his people are gathered together to proclaim his name. There's lots of ways we proclaim it. It's not just standing up here and talking about it. But anywhere his people are gathered to proclaim his name, Jesus is there and he says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest I want to close with a quote from Andrew Murray who describes this truth that Jesus is here in the church in a way that I could never match it's a little long so bear with me but I want to read the whole thing because it's just amazing so he's talking about in the church here the Father's face is seen and His love tasted. Here His holiness is revealed and the soul may partaker of it. Here the sacrifice of love and worship and adoration, the incense of prayer and supplication is offered. Here the outpouring of the Spirit is known as an ever-streaming, overflowing river from under the throne of God and the Lamb. Here the soul in God's presence grows into more complete oneness with Christ. Here in union with Christ, in his unceasing intercession, we are emboldened to take our place as intercessors who could have power with God and prevail. Here the soul mounts up as on eagle's wings. The strength is renewed and the blessing and power and the love are imparted with which God's priest can go out to bless a dying world. Oh, Jesus, O oh, great high Priest, let us, This be our life. And that is why we are doing this series on the church. Because Jesus is here in a way that he's found nowhere else. And though we're still rough and flawed, slowly and surely he is changing that rough, uncut, flawed stone into a perfect diamond to blaze forth in in his light which he has brought us into for his glory. May these truths encourage us, may they empower us, may they change us, and may, more than anything, our hearts be set ablaze by them and cry, Jesus is precious. Let's pray. (sighs) Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are and who you have made us to be. And as we've already said, far so often you are not as precious to us as you deserve and as we would wish. Draw us closer to you. Open our eyes to see you. Be glorified in our midst as we do life together and proclaim your name. Especially bless us as we come to sit at the feet of your table here in this service and feed upon you. Let us see you more clearly. In your name, for your glory we pray,
0: amen.